Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have you with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. A lot to talk about today. Uh, And instead of our usual broad panel of uh, people uh, who quite often are terrific to have on the show, it's just going to be me and AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein. We're going to hold down the fort, the two of us batting stories back and forth. And Greg Bluestein, we certainly have plenty to talk about today, don't we? Yeah, I mean, what what a week. (laughs) Lots to talk about. Yeah, yeah, insane. Uh, Before we do... uh, Tell us how you, things are going at home. You've got your two daughters, your wife. You're still kind of sheltering in place. Are your daughters yeah, going you, crazy? Are they driving you crazy? <laughs> How's that working out? You know, there's been a transformation. I, I they used to be we used to be driving each other crazy. Now I'm kind of jealous of them. They're, they're kind of living the my dream as a kid. They, they get to bike around the neighborhood. They get to go to the neighborhood swimming pool in the park. They get to play with friends that we're kind of quarantining with. They get to, you know, they, they check in. I, I tell my, my nine-year-old, like, hey, you know, just be back for dinner sometimes. So <laughs> they're really enjoying it. <laughs> well, I'm glad for that. I mean, there's peace in the Bluestein household. That's good to know. For now. Um, all right, let's get right into some of the big news that we want to deal with. Of course, people know by now that the uh, legislature is back in session, and uh, they're in their third day of 11 days that were left when they uh, suspended it. Uh, because of the virus. And Greg, the big story today is uh, the hate crimes bill. We know that uh, last session, last session, the House, uh, at the urging of Speaker Ralston, with with the uh, backing of Republican Chuck Efstration, who sponsored the bill, did pass a hate crimes bill. It went to the Senate. They held on to it. And there's been some concern among those who support this bill that the Senate might never let it see the light of day. Uh, any form of it. But now the lieutenant governor, president of the Senate, Jeff Duncan, has a bill that uh, he's uh, bringing out. What is Duncan saying about his legislation and how it differs from the House's? Yeah, and this could substantially differ differ from the uh, the House measure. Uh, he, he's, he's set to unveil it um, soon, but basically it would make hate crime a standalone charge instead of an add-on enhancement to another crime. It would allow members of the community to file a warrant to force a grand jury hearing for hate crime if a prosecutor doesn't initially do so. It would carry a penalty of one to five years, and uh, it also is expected to include a requirement that law enforcement officials track the crimes for the first time in a state database. So those are some of the elements we know. And look, Lieutenant Governor Duncan has really raised the stakes on this. Um, he, he, he has promised several times in national media interviews on CNN and Fox News that this measure will pass his chamber, which is no small feat considering that the Senate has, has been kind of where the, the bill has, has gone to, uh, to rest over the last few years, including last year where it got stalled in the Senate Judiciary Committee over concerns that, that, it, uh, that it was too, too broad and too restrictive at the same time. So let's make sure that our listeners understand the difference. Uh, un- under the House version of this bill, which is passed, um, the hate crimes portion of the of the bill, or the hate crime, would be a, uh, a pen- an additional penalty that would be added on 
after a jury had convicted an individual of a crime. So if you're convicted of murder, uh, then there would be a further hearing in, and an enhancement of the penalty in which uh, the prosecution could argue that this was based on bias and therefore there should be an additional penalty to what was already imposed. Have I got that part of it right? You, you got it. And in the Senate version, it is a standalone okay. crime. So if you were if you were charged with murder, you could also be charged with a separate hate crime. Um, and I, I think we're going to hear the the case of Ahmed Arbery, um, who was who was killed in Brunswick, used as an example a lot because um, prosecutors say and investigators say that he that his alleged murderer um, muttered a, a racial epithet after his killing. And so in that case, if the hate crime if the Senate bill is passed, he could the you know the the, the alleged gunman could be charged with a separate crime. Whereas if the House version is passed, it would be an add-on to the to the murder charge that he's already facing. So um, where do we? So, so we know that David Ralston for weeks has been saying that he needs a clean bill to come back from the Senate because he doesn't know that there's enough time to have a conference committee. He also doesn't know whether some of the members who may have felt a little reluctant about voting for this measure in the House, which passed by a narrow margin, are going to continue to support it. What, what do we think, Greg, this does to the possibility that there's going to be a, a bill passed before they leave in now nine days? Yeah, it sounds like a lot of time, but it's really not in the, in the Georgia legislature, considering how long it takes to get bills through the session. And look, we've been we've been debating this in Georgia for 16 years, ever since the the the, the initial law that passed in 2000 was struck down four years later by the Georgia Supreme Court as unconstitutionally vague. So these things take time, um, which is why I, I heard from Calvin Smyre, the dean of the Georgia of the Georgia legislature, a House Democrat, um, this morning, who said that he he is very nervous. Um, that, that that this won't happen in time for maybe about next week, which is when the legislative session will adjourn. So we're, t- we're looking at a very, very condensed timetable. And um, just the fact that it, could, it has to go through another vote in the House, even even one word change in the Senate means that it has to be taken up in the House again. And there's already a sort of a movement in the House uh, where it narrowly passed last year, 96 votes. So it passed by about five or six votes. It needs 91 votes to pass. Um, there's already a movement in the House to block it among conservatives who feel like this. They, they worry that it won't be consistently enforced throughout the judicial system. Well, I also assume that it's one thing to pass this very controversial high stakes measure in 2019, which the House did. And another thing to try to come back and take another bite at the apple in 2020, an election year where some of those who are on the fence may feel it, it could have an impact on their reelection chances. Yeah, and it could go either way. I mean, for for the conservatives who might be facing primary challenges, that that's already in the rearview mirror, right? Um, uh, but yeah, there's there's a worry about. Oh yeah, that's politics. right. You're right. But still, there's still general election. You know, there's still there's still some some people who are facing general election challenges who want to mobilize their base in November as well. Um, and we've talked to a lot of a lot of lawmakers who were previously opposed to it, who are who are now torn. Uh, and one of them is Senate Majority Leader Mike Dugan, who who said he's decided to support Duncan's bill after spending the past year studying it. But it it, it does show you how controversial this this legislation is. There's a reason it hasn't passed in 16 years, even, even though, you know, even though it has broad support among Democrats and among Republicans in Metro Atlanta, because out in more conservative rural districts, it's still controversial. 
So, um, Greg Bluestein, I know the question I'm about to ask you calls to some extent for speculation, um, but I think in the aftermath of the Ahmad Arbery shooting, which was such a horrific uh, thing that we unfortunately watched unfold on video, um, the people of Georgia seem to be um, more uh, open than ever to uh, wanting to take action to stop horrific uh, crimes like this from taking place. Why, why are we still arguing over whether Georgia ought to have a hate crimes law? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there, there has been pretty solid conservative opposition, especially in the in the Georgia Senate, uh, against this hate crimes legislation. As you mentioned, it was passed initially 20 years ago, right? This has been something that was in the, in the Georgia books 20 years ago until it was struck down in 2004. Um, and then since then, there's been efforts to revive it. Um, but you know, I'll, quote, I'll quote State Rep. Phil, Philip Singleton, who's a newly elected Republican from Sharpsburg. Um, and this is what he said. He, he said he had no confidence the measure would be fairly and consistently applied throughout Georgia. He said every victim deserves justice. This should be equal under the law and not subject to the subjective judgment of the judicial system. So there's worry that, that prosecutors um, or law enforcement officials could abuse the statute. That's the most common concern we've heard. We've also heard concerns from op- opponents about uh, First Amendment rights being deprived. Um, and there's also worry that, that you know, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't protect certain classes that need to be protected, that, that advocates feel like need, need to be protected, like, like um, sexual orientation, uh, crimes uh, based on, on sexual orientation or, or other protected classes. Um, so those are some of the, the criticisms we, 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 fa- we, we hear from, from lawmakers and from members of the community. But look, it looks like right now there is there's a momentum behind this bill that we haven't seen before. Um, we, yeah. we, we've seen uh, yeah. 500 executives. Yeah, 500 executives have signed letters, um, bipartisan groups of leaders from President Jimmy Carter to former Governor Nathan Deal have all signed a letter urging that the House version of the measure be passed. So we're seeing some some major traction this time. Um, finally, of course, and then we'll move on, uh, Governor Kemp could lend weight to this effort. Uh, he has remained, he said he's open to looking at it, but he has not really jumped in. Am I, am I right about that? You're exactly right. He, his signal, he's receptive to it. He, he's not saying that he's going to veto it. He's not saying um, anything negative about it. Um, he's instead saying, let's see how the process plays out in, in the legislature. He is, a, he is a staunch ally of Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. Um, I checked in with his folks a lot yesterday and essentially heard that they're, they're still waiting to see what the final draft is. They've been consulted, but this was still mu- very much a moving target um, late last night. So there's, and there's still speculation even this morning about some last minute changes to the bill. All right. We're going to watch it unfold. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Greg, sticking with that theme, Senate Democrats want a different package of police reform measures. They want to repeal the state citizen arrest statute. Uh, they uh, want to repeal Stand Your Ground here. They want a civilian re- uh, review board for police departments to review hiring, use of force, and other complaints. Uh, it's a package that uh, does address a lot of the problems we're seeing pop up a- across the country in relation to police shootings. But uh, this is an aggressive measure, and it's a sweeping one that certainly isn't going to go anywhere in this last few days of the 2020 session, right? Yeah, this is a, that's a, it's, it's a tough haul. 
Uh, and we've asked uh, Speaker David Ralston about that um, just yesterday, and he said, we've got nine days left. These are big subjects. Um, policing reform, reforming citizens' arrest are topics worthy of discussion, but they, they feel like they cannot act in, in haste is what David Ralston explained it. Uh, that's how he characterized it. Um, but, you know, there, there will be some movement on this. It looks like there will be a study committee or at least some intense uh, review of what, what shape this type of legislation could take. The worry, of course, um, from advocates and Democrats is that lawmakers might pass a hate crimes legislation, kind of pat themselves on the back and then say their work is done uh, without addressing more systemic reforms. And the, the Georgia the NAACP, which organized that massive rally at the state capitol just a few days ago, hate crimes wasn't even on their list of demands. So that, that shows you um, what they're pushing for. They're pushing for much more um, broader changes. Uh, meanwhile, uh, uh, the mayor of Atlanta, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, seems to be more than happy to move independently and aggressively as an executive. Uh, she is looking at banning uh, uh, rubber bullets, at uh, banning uh, flash bombs, tear gas in her uh, department. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how far she gets with uh, trying to push those as executive orders and how the police department and the police union may push back, Greg. Yeah. Um, the, the city council's taking up that ban on rubber bullets and other, other chemical dispersals. Um, and it could be a, a, a city statute within the next two weeks. So again, that shows you how quickly local communities are moving. They're not waiting for the state. There's also debates all over Georgia in rural and in in left-leaning communities about defunding parts of the of, of 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 their law enforcement communities, not not necessarily disbanding police like we're seeing and like we're hearing about in Minneapolis, but defunding elements of it and shifting funding to more community-based services and mental health help. So that will be really fascinating for yeah. us to watch. Um, I got to get to another break, Greg. Uh, I do want to say that we are now planning a show on the whole question of defunding the police, or you know abolishing police forces. I mean, those are very dramatic terms. Uh, we're going to talk about it and hear what people think uh, when they say that, what they really mean. We're going to do that show sometime next week, and uh, I think we're going to have a great conversation about it. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. All right, let's start by saying the finger pointing over the meltdown in last week's primary election in many polling places in the state continues. Um, Brad Raffensperger and his people have said over and over again, no, blame it on the counties, especially DeKalb and Fulton. Well, fair fight. Uh, Stacey Abrams' organization just released an ad, and here's what they had to say about that. Secretary, good morning. How are things running now? Well, by and large, they're running very smoothly. Georgia's primary election is off to a rocky start. Voting machines not working or being delivered. They never got their absentee ballots they applied for. Five, six, seven hours waiting. Problems pile up at the precincts. The chief officer running our elections is passing the buck on his responsibilities, trying to force underfunded Georgia counties to run our state's elections. Tell him to do his job. 
tell him to do his job, Greg Bluestein. It, you know, at a certain point, you've kind of got to hope that the counties and the Secretary of State's office can get past this fight they're having and actually come together to work on solutions for the August runoff and, and then the November election. Uh, but there's still a lot of bad feeling out there. A lot of blame gaming going on. And we've seen the same blame gaming for, for you know, years, more than a decade, at least in, in, in Georgia. And look, I was out there interviewing dozens of voters who are waiting at different polling precincts for hours because of faulty equipment, because of poor staff training, because of myriad reasons. And they don't care about the, you know, the voters I interviewed don't care about the blame game. They don't care about the fighting between the state and the counties. They just want to be able to vote without any obstacles. And so that's where the kind of the rubber hits the road here is what will Georgia officials do to make it easier for Georgians to vote? We're going to watch and see if they get together. I, I, I assume there's not much hope for Secretary Raffensperger's uh, pitch to the General Assembly. He wants them to pass legislation that would allow him to move in and take control of county election apparatuses if they uh, don't seem to be preparing properly for an election. find it hard to imagine that's going to go anywhere in the current environment. Yeah, what's interesting to me is that he, you know, this is this is a Raffensperger is someone who came in without much of a his own base in politics. He was just some a, a newer lawmaker, not very well known, even with his own his own caucus. And after this, we have not seen a rush to, among his fellow Republican officials to defend him. Um, they 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 have also you know pointed fingers at the county officials, but no one's you haven't seen Governor Kemp or Senator Purdue or others who have spoken publicly about about the fiasco last week also say Brad Raffensperger is doing a terrific job and he should keep it up. And, and privately, a lot of Republican lawmakers are very concerned about giving his office more power. Um, I've, I've talked to many who just who don't have that sort of confidence in his leadership ability right now. That could change. And we could see a lot of a lot, a lot of crazy, a lot of you know new developments in the next eight or nine days. Uh, but right now, I, I don't see that happening. OK, um. Let's talk about some of the races that were on the ballot last week. We know, of course, that John Ossoff was able to capture the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate without a runoff and is now engaged in a battle with David Perdue for uh, that uh, seat in the Senate. Uh, uh, Public policy polling, which is, you know, a a polling organization that this was uh, this was commissioned by Democrats, shows that. Purdue and Ossoff are basically tied 45% for Ossoff, 44% for Purdue, Democratic polling. But, Greg, it isn't far from polling we've seen by independent organizations either. This does promise to be a close race. Yeah, exactly. I mean, usually we would discount a a poll like this from a left-leaning outlet uh, done on behalf of of a group that supports John Ossoff. Um, So you take that with a grain of salt. But we've seen a string of Republican internal polls that showed an equally close race between David Perdue and John Ossoff in a hypothetical matchup. These were done before last week's primary, as well as very, very tight races between Joe Biden and President Donald Trump in Georgia, which has Republicans, uh, given Republicans a cause for concern, we're not hearing them dismiss these polls outright like we might have two years ago or, or four years ago or, or eight years ago. Instead, we're hearing them say, look, 2018 was a wake-up wake up call, and Republicans have, have got to get ready for a charged Democratic fight. Um, and speaking of people who won without a runoff, we finally learned, I think just yesterday maybe, Greg, you'd know this better mm-hmm. than I, 
that uh, Carolyn Bordeaux in the 7th District won her Democratic primary without a runoff. They were waiting for absentee ballots from Forsyth and Gwinnett to be counted. They couldn't, they thought they had it won. They've kind of been leaking information to the media saying, hint, hint, we think we've won this thing. Yesterday, they were able to confirm that Carolyn Bordeaux won without a runoff. That was interesting, partly because she had a pretty good challenge from a couple of different uh, uh, women running in that for that seat, uh, and she pulled it out. Yeah, and, and this, again, is, is the effect of absentee ballots, because as of early Wednesday morning, uh, a few national outlets, including the Associated Press, called it for in a, a, a runoff between um, Carolyn Bordeaux and State Representative Brenda uh, R- Lopez Romero. And the moment they called it, I started getting phone calls, not only from from the other candidates, but also from people allied with with Carolyn Bordeaux, who said it's too early to call this race. There's still tens of thousands of absentee ballots out. At one point, there was they called the race when it was about 50,000 ballots were in, and they expected 30,000 more out. So that's almost half the the ballots are still yet to be counted. Shows you how much that has changed the game of projecting races. And pretty soon, it became apparent that that that, that AP call was was wrong. All right, um, Tom Faust is telling me we've got another pledge break to get to. Um, why don't we go ahead and get that done with, and then Greg will have one more uh, uh, segment to come back and wrap things up on today's show. So this is my chance to uh, give you a pitch. Um, I'm really proud of the work that Political Rewind has done, especially in the last three months, ever since the coronavirus uh, became the story uh, that w- everybody was following so closely, the biggest story I think many of us will ever cover in our lives. And we really retooled the show. We never got away completely from our political base because we know you love it when we talk politics. But we did add the element of being able to talk about the virus, have virologists, have epidemiologists come on the show and talk to you. Um, and then we uh, turned again to talk about Ahmad Arbery and all of the ramifications of that killing. Um, so we've been flexible And we've been trying to be responsive to what's happening right now in our state. And and I think we're very proud that we've been able to pull that off. I hope you think we've been able to pull it off. And if you do and you haven't had a chance to support us, this is a chance to do that. So please take a moment, listen to how you can get involved with GPB Radio. The HAC's Greg Bluestein and I talking politics on Political Rewind. Uh, Greg, Kelly Leffler was cleared yesterday by the Senate Ethics Committee. There were two complaints filed, uh, one by Common Cause, uh, the other by Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics, uh, accusing her of essentially insider trading, taking advantage of the knowledge she got in a Senate uh, 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 briefing about the how diff- how bad the coronavirus might get to sell off some stocks and invest in others that might rise in value, companies that might rise in value during the pandemic. But the Ethics Committee said she did nothing wrong. Clearly, the Leffler campaign is going to be touting that. Um, it, that helps her because it gets her out from under that cloud, but she's still got a long way to go against Doug Collins, doesn't she? Yeah, and you're going to hear Congressman Collins say kind of what he did last time she was cleared by the DOJ in that case and say, look, that doesn't that doesn't remove the uh, the cloud of suspicion just because there's no there's no criminal wrongdoing doesn't mean what she did was right. And, and what what he's talking about is um, the sort of aura that she 
um, that after a senator's only briefing on coronavirus back in January 24th, that that several stock trades were made on behalf of her um, that that seemed to benefit her for companies that that benefited from the pandemic, like like WebEx, you know, the, like social software systems and, and things like that. Um, and that's what that's what's being that's what's being bandied about right right now on social media and in some of the digital attack ads targeting her. And she spent $4 million um, to sort of revive her image on her own series of ads, boosting her, her, her name recognition, as well as um, targeting Doug Collins. So right now, Republicans are focused on each other, while Democrats, who have their own you know, pitch battle to face, are more or less free to, to attack both Collins and Leffler. Yeah, and and part of that is because uh, 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 Democrats have rallied, national Democrats and organizations at the national level uh, have decided to rally pretty much around uh, Raphael Warnock on that in that race, uh, despite the fact that Ed Tarver is certainly a legitimate candidate. Uh, Matt Lieberman is working hard to uh, uh, make himself uh, a, a higher profile candidate, but Warnock seems to be the guy everybody's coalescing around, and that does help Democrats in that jungle race, doesn't it? Yeah, the National Democratic Party has endorsed the National Senate. Democrats have endorsed Reverend Warnock. So has Stacey Abrams. So have five former presidential candidates who are in the U.S. Senate. So a lot of his potentially future colleagues have endorsed him, um, as well as more and more state leaders, including a, a group of state lawmakers, Democratic state lawmakers that recently endorsed Warnock. So he's trying to show, he's trying to consolidate that support and show that he's the only contender. I know there are quiet efforts out there to try to get Matt Lieberman and and uh, Ed Tarver out of that race because um, Democrats might, their, their best chance at winning the seat might be an outright victory in November because Democrats have a poor track record of winning runoffs. And with 21 candidates in that race, a runoff seems inevitable, although we also thought a runoff was inevitable in the Ossoff race, and he ended up winning it uh, outright. Yeah, it's going to be fa- – that that race number two uh, is just going to be a, an extraordinary thing for us as political journalists to watch unfold in the months ahead, Greg. Yeah, I mean, campaigning through Thanksgiving and Christmas and Hanukkah, the entire national media descending on Georgia because their their attention won't yeah. be distracted by general elections in November. It's going to be going to be crazy. Yeah, and then the possibility of a runoff in that race, which wouldn't take place until after the first of the year, till twenty twenty one, and in the aftermath of a presidential election, which will either give Donald Trump four more years in the White House or elect Joe Biden. That's when it's really going to get interesting. <laughs> yeah, that race will be right before inauguration. So whoever is, whether it's President Trump sworn in for a second term or Joe Biden sworn in, sworn in for a first, uh, we're, we're going to have a, a. It would be preceded by. It looks like it would be preceded by a, a Georgia runoff in that other Senate race. So, yeah, it's going to be a long year for us. Yeah. yeah. All right, we got we're virtually out of time. Uh, one quick uh, uh, question, Greg. We're tomorrow on the show. By the way, we're going to go back to look at the coronavirus and the spread of COVID nineteen. We are having an uptick of it here in Georgia. It's not as great as in other states around us where they're seeing significant increases. Nevertheless, the numbers are going up uh, since the state has be reopened for business. And uh, Joshua White's Dr. Joshua White's from Georgia Tech. Uh, the virologist will be here to help us understand what all of this means. Okay, that tomorrow, that's about the virus. Greg, are there p- 
political repercussions. I mean, our, the, the public is very undecided about whether it's been a good idea to open or not open. Uh, Governor Kemp's not on the ballot for another two years. I, I'm having a hard time calculating how much impact this is having on how people view him. Are you able to get a sense of that? Yeah, I'm, I'm having a hard time, too. We knew way back in April when President Trump joined the chorus of critics um, slamming Governor Kemp for, for phasing in new sectors of the economy. We knew back, in, back then he was in political peril. But since then, President Trump and Vice President Pence have kind of changed their tune. Pence has visited Georgia twice to proclaim the state a model of how to re- phase in economies. And you've, you've heard, uh, I guess, it's still sharp criticism from Democrats, but it's less urgent. Um, because although we have had an increase, it has not been a second wave yet, like public health experts worried it would be. So the, the political ramifications are still too early to tell, but certainly I think it will play a factor in 2022. It's going to be, yeah. All right, I'm out of time, Greg Bluestein. Um, You know, we talk about uh, value that we think we bring uh, our listeners with uh, this show. Uh, we should say it's having people like you on, Greg Bluestein. I, I get such great pleasure out of being able to talk with you once a week and your AJC colleagues on this show. It's always, it's fun, and I learned so much. So I special thanks to you today, Greg, for uh, continuing to be a part of Political Rewind. Take care and please stay healthy.